Hey, Susanna. Hey, Tavi. Yo, what's going on? Yo, not much, but like, look at you. It's like Perky Tavita's back. This is like a big, big change from the past couple weeks. Yeah. What's good? Yeah, well, what's good is I think that like one of the 40, 50 some odd people that are listening to our podcast happens to be the International Criminal Court. What? Yeah, dude. So unlikely. Since, yeah, no, yeah, no, totally unlikely. But since that um, episode that we did, the last episode that was about sort of like a legal framework right. um, to sort of punish climate crimes and, yes. and like meet out damages, basically. Uh, it turns out that that trend, uh, as we were kind of predicting, is growing really, really fast. Amazing. Yeah. So there was just a, just a quick kind of update. There was an uh, article that I saw in the World Economic Forum uh, website uh, that was all about ecocide, which is uh, a newly developing kind of legal crime, definition of legal crime, ecocide, uh, that may be prosecuted by the International Criminal Court in a few years. Huh. Yeah. So the International Criminal Court, you know, in The Hague, uh, it's like the most atrocious crimes, like war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression, all the worst things that people can do to each other uh, are tried there internationally. They had a group of independent legal scholars that, that have now come up with a definition of ecocide that they hope will become the fifth type of crime uh, that the ICC can uh, prosecute. So that means a nation or a state or a group of people could essentially sue like a fossil fuel company for causing environmental harm yeah 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 absolutely it's really exciting because uh, quick note i used to study international criminal law uh, in undergrad so you're a smarty no undergrad <laughs> I, to I, beat the smarty pants no, no, hold on. Okay. I'm really undergrad smart. undergrad which means i know a lot of the vocabulary and i can sort of talk the talk but so the, you're not a lawyer but you play one on a podcast <laughs> i play one only saying. on a podcast but basically, yeah, like, um, you know, the biggest problem for the ICC up to this point has been the fact that the nation states that are either victims of uh, these crimes or, you know, hosts of these crimes, let's right. say, for lack of a better word, they don't really want the international attention mm. and they don't want an independent international court to necessarily come in and supersede their jurisdiction and their sort of right of self-determination. So it's been it's, it's always an uphill battle trying to get a criminal case for like war crimes over crimes against humanity Got in it. through the court. But this is interesting because I can think off the top of my head, there are so many countries who are essentially, you know, victims of these climate crimes and these atrocious extractive practices. And they, they aren't necessarily strong enough as a nation state to stand up to these gigantic multinational corporations who've been there for decades or centuries. These right. are countries that could theoretically say, you know, we don't have the power to prosecute these crimes ourselves. Let's take it to the international court. So it's all exciting. It's all very exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. It's it's a couple of years off, uh, to be clear. Like the definition was just shared and now it has to go through a lot of political, you know, maneuvering to become okay. the fifth category of crimes that the ICC can prosecute. But it's exciting. It's an exciting move towards what we were talking about in that last episode of like the full spectrum of action that needs to be taken to fight climate change. Like this is another example of like the top down, like a government, but in this case, an international body saying, even over the power of the nation state, we need a body that can acknowledge these as crimes and meet out judgment accordingly, which is super cool. Yeah. yeah. So it's like we can take individual actions, we can lobby for our own states and nations to be taking actions, but then here's even another level of legal ramifications and legal course on an international level exactly. to go after changing the system. That's yeah. pretty cool. It's really cool. Yeah, that's sort of like a follow-up on our last episode. So I thought like that was cool. That, that's like another it's like another tool that we can use on like the big scale, the top-down scale, right. like big hulking nation states or international bodies. I thought maybe in this episode we could sort of explore the other angle. 
Is yeah. there something that we can do on a grassroots individual level? Beyond, you know, beyond going solar, of you, course. Yeah, you know I love that. <laughs> I love talking about the individual actions. And uh, I got to say, I'm just happy that hopeful Perky Tav is back. <laughs> Perky Tav. So let's do it. Let's start the solar spill. Solar spill. Notice there that time I did not. But so that's, I'm not gonna yeah, do it again. But don't yeah, do it again. yeah, that was that was a lot. Um, so yeah, um, Susanna, okay. what's new? Yes, what is new this week? <laughs> um, terrifying things are happening. Hopefully, we don't put too much of a downer on a hopeful to eat. But did you see that the Gulf of Mexico caught on fire? Pa- pa- par- pardon me. Yeah, the Gulf of Mexico caught on fire because there was a break in a pipeline that was carrying fossil fuels underneath the sea. And it caught on fire, and so raging, raging fire, bubbling water, terrifying hellscape opened up in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, isn't that something? I saw, I think I saw a picture of that, and I assumed it was just like literally like a Paul Verhoeven film, right? Where I was like, like, this is a fun action movie. Like, oh, look at this awesome Photoshop job that somebody did yeah. to bring attention to the issue of climate change. Yeah, oh my wrong. Gosh. It, it was real. It was real. So a ring of fire in the ocean. Lovely. You know, it's it's reminds me a lot of what was it? It was that that you, decades ago the Cleveland River caught fire. Yes. Right. Yeah. There was like yes. that kind of moment in American history, and that was a huge. That was a turning point, I believe, in it was American very impactful. history. Right? It right. Inspired the the sort of movement that kind of gave birth to our modern EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency. Right, hugely important. So yeah, uh, so I, I guess the the podcast now is, the rest of the episode is just going to be us talking about how the ring of fire in the Gulf of Mexico uh, inspired the EPA to like double its efforts um, uh, to battle climate change. And everything's great, right? Story's over. Uh, I wish that was the case. Uh, but our, uh, our 45th president kind of gutted a lot of the EPA's authority and oversight and put a lot of what they were doing on pause. Ah, yes. This was back in 2017 uh, and 2018 when uh, that guy plus Scott Pruitt, uh, you know, basically who had taken over the EPA, who was obviously not even a climate change denier. He's like a pro-business lobbyist. He was a former pro-business lobbyist, definitely in bed with fossil fuels and lots of stuff. So he basically took over the EPA. Um, and as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, I remember the next thing that happened was when COVID-19 broke out, uh, Scott Pruitt and the EPA basically suspended all of their like provisions and protections. And they basically, and this is the, I'm laughing only because of the absurdity of it. They put all of American business on the honor system. Wow. No joke. Well, That's worked well in the past. Oh, oh so my gosh. Every I can time. see why yeah. they thought that would be effective. Right. Yeah. Every time you give, you know, post-colonial extractive <clears throat> business, you know, owners and magnates a, an honor system, someone dies or like someone steals yeah. or someone destroys and no one is the wiser. Um, and it's a problematic thing. I, I So we're going to link to a few articles um, in the description of the podcast if you want to read more deeply. But it's a pretty, it was a pretty insidious move only because not only was it so deftly rolled out, it was basically just like, hey, starting today, COVID-19 has got to be tough on your business. So listen, try your best, try your best to like meet the standards and, and regulations that we've let. Please try your best. And oh, oh, by the way, and this is actually the process, by the way, if you can't meet 
our standards, please just document it and like send us a copy when you can what? of what your violations were and why. Uh... And like this is it. This is currently the system we are coming out of, right? right? This hasn't ended yet. We are currently in a state of suspended regulations from the EPA that is meant to protect the environment from us and us from the polluters, basically, from the effect the polluters have upon our environment. So there's nothing, right? Companies have to hand in their own record of their violations. It's never going to happen. That's like giving yourself your own parking ticket. Yeah, essentially. Who's going to do that? Well, there's no business motivation. Like, to I, I was five minutes over on the parking meter, but I'll just let it slide. <laughs> You're not going to write yourself up for that. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a horrendous thing to think that like you know the most extractive and the most profit motivated you know people and organs of this country are ever going to have any motivation to do so. There's no motivation built into their business model to do so. Right. And so like shower thoughts style, it kind of got me thinking, how could we possibly emerge from COVID with this current totally messed up system of self-reporting and like self-governance? And how can we emerge from that and kind of ease the transition, hopefully back towards a place where the EPA is doing its dang job, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I am curious to hear your your ideas because yeah. it's it seems like pretty massive. It's not like the government can employ a hundred thousand ticket writers, right? right, right? Well They're not well going to be able to to ramp up that enforcement like that without mm -hmm. a huge amount of people and training and money. So yeah. yeah, like what's the solution? Well, the solution actually lies, I think. So this is again based on <laughs> this is this is based on undergrad law <laughs> understanding. But Here actually, we go again. No, what's great? What's great though is that the EPA actually has a very specific kind of spire of its charter and its like mission and how it works that is dedicated to citizen enforcement. And that's mm. been from the start, right? Citizen enforcement has been a huge part of the EPA's understanding of what a climate crime is and where it's happening since its very beginning. Okay. Any federal agency is going to have a hard time seeing everything, right? right? Always, of right? Course. And the EPA in particular kind of knew that challenge. Uh, and so citizen enforcement is built into the EPA and allows everyday people to report on environmental crimes. That rule has never changed. It still has been a critical element of the crimes that have been found and fined and stopped by the EPA. And I think it'll be even more important. So I started to think about that, like citizen enforcement. Okay, citizen enforcement. What does that look like, yeah. you know, in 2021? And then something happened. Again, shower thoughts were like my past, my present, and the potential future all slapped into one. We both... Susanna, you and I have backgrounds in digital, right? Like yep. I come from like, you know, websites and digital products and video games. And you worked for a long time building and helping communities on Etsy. And like both of those angles were kind of like running through my head. And I was like, oh my gosh, maybe the answer to this transition out of COVID and into a, a greater sense of citizen enforcement is Pokemon Go. Wait, what? I, I didn't make that leap there. Yeah, no, Pokemon no, no. Pokemon <laughs> Go to citizen enforcement. Yeah, exactly. Let me close that gap. Yeah, basically you're going to go out there and like all of the Pokemon are like evil polluters. Now basically like uh, I come, you know, from the world I come from in video games, I think there's this concept called gamification. And gamification yes, is taking, yeah, yeah, it's like taking the concepts of like video game mechanics and applying them to non-video game software or experiences or non-game experiences. It doesn't have to be video games. So we've seen this as, as everyday people, we've seen this... Uh, uh, gamification is most easily seen in your Duolingo account when you like level up and you rank up, you know, ahead of your friends in learning French or in your Nike Plus uh, sharing your run times and your distances and your trails with your friends and ranking up on a leaderboard. 
We see it uh, even in the mechanics of like Tinder, a dating application, which saw that the problem uh, of most dating applications was that they were all sausage fests and women would leave the platforms because they were not empowered to, you know, basically have an even playing field. And Tinder and a lot of others that have even improved over that have like created this swipe system. So it's asymmetrical and it gives the sort of minority user, in this case, the disempowered users, the women of the platform, the more valuable users, more power, right? We see gamification happening all the time, balancing, reward systems. And really when they all break down, the big power of gamification is using intrinsic and extrinsic motivations to change people's behavior. So what what is that intrinsic, extrinsic? Okay, yeah. The difference... <laughs> it sounds like internal, external. Yeah, but... kind of, kind of. And intrinsic, you could, like the shorthand of it is as like a former game designer. Uh, an intrinsic motivator is the stuff that like all humans can access. Mm -hmm. It's this feeling of like mastery. Like when you mm -hmm. learn something and you get really good at something. Of course, there's mm -hmm. like the extrinsic, like I can now build this ice sculpture. I'm really good right. at this. Like look at the beautiful ice sculpture. But intrinsically, there's this feeling of like, if I picked up a chainsaw and a big hunk of ice in front of me, I've mastered that skill. Mm -hmm. And that's just for me inside of myself. There's right. also belonging, belonging to a group belonging to a cause, love, satisfaction, those comfort feelings, those can be intrinsic motivators. Mm -hmm. And then extrinsic motivators on the other side are like the sort of material outputs. Uh, if you were playing a game and that game bestowed upon you the rank of number one mm -hmm. and a little piece of digital ephemera, like a little confetti burst animation on a trophy that sits on your, like under your like avatar, boom, extrinsic motivator. It means nothing. It has no real fungible value. It's a gold two-dimensional trophy picture, but it's an extrinsic thing. It's like, look at this, I got this trophy, wow. Scores, ranks, those kinds of things. Rewards, I will give you an ice sculpture if you give me this money. That money is an extrinsic motivator, right? Has no internal human value, but it like has an extrinsic showing up. So okay. gamification, in short, takes a mix of intrinsic and extrinsic motivators to change behavior. And why I started with Pokemon Go, um, is that like, hey, you know, intrinsic and extrinsic motivators mix up in that application cocktail and have changed the behavior of millions of people. The behavior change being, I'm already going about my day, right? I'm doing a thing, I'm out and about, I'm commuting to work. And now my changed behavior is I will stoop down and find a little like Charmander on the, you know, on the road and stop what I'm doing and snap that photo and play the game. You know, game play is the change behavior I'm now in this thing or maybe even in the most radical sense i'm walking more mm -hmm. i wasn't a person that would go out and walk i've met right. a lot of people over the last few years who were like yeah i'm healthier now because i play pokemon go because wow. I like, yeah no seriously that's a, yeah that's huge. families that's play it together change. there's yeah. people that like travel go to places in the world with a mind's eye on how they can play their pokemon go game in relationship with their vacation right traveling right so all that, let's like take all that and sort of translate it into why I think that that could be a really meaningful use of gamification for this problem that the EPA has, right? Look, we've all got phones in our pockets, or, or many of us have phones in our pockets. Yep. And many of those phones have cameras. And yep. many of those phones also have a software like, you know, setup that allows you to tell the time and where you are, right? I'm talking like 90% of cell phone users, right? Maybe a little bit less will be taken. Certainly all smartphone users. Smartphone users, right? We've got that, you know, and then we've got this problem of at least two years of, you know, hidden and not so hidden climate crimes all around us. Uh -huh. Could there be an application where I am given intrinsic and, and, and extrinsic motivators to go about my day and spot and capture climate crimes as they're happening 
and record see them. what you're getting at. And immediately send them right in the back end to the EPA for logging, just basically for record. There's my pitch, right? Like that's the most basic pitch. And we can, we can pop open the hood because there's lots in there. What do games do really well also? Our gamification does really well. It's a good teacher. Like, I don't know what a climate crime looks like in most cases. Yeah, that's you... my first question is what, is what are the crimes I'm looking for? Well, I, don't I mean, know. yeah, like beyond like someone literally dumping neon like sludge yeah. into a river, which is happening, unfortunately. <laughs> like Captain Planet style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could identify Planet. those crimes. And but... hey, we live right near the Hudson. You know, there's a constant time, <laughs> horribly time-honored tradition of watching what gets dumped into the Hudson and being right. very, very careful about making sure that the companies that are dumping into the Hudson are doing so in the regulated manner that does not off, like does not throw the, that water table off balance and is like can be processed in a swept way, whatever. Um, yeah, there's other climate crimes too. Like growing up in New York City, for example, like I learned colloquially that like, you know, the the skyscrapers and stuff, they all have these like vent pipes at the top that's like venting all this stuff. They're actually time controlled. Huh. The time of day and the duration with which you're allowed to vent any sort of exhaust or gases or whatever Yep. from your building is like mapped and regulated super, super carefully. Most of the times automatically, but in some cases not. And there have been violations, of course. Like when you see a smokestack just pouring out smoke, people do call 311. People do that action, but they are usually the people who have been so victimized or traumatized by that constant pollution that they are, you know, they're like the only person or the only building that's like in relationship with it. What I'm talking about is potentially a system that can create a learning experience, a tutorial in video game speak uh, that will teach everyday people the types of climate crimes that have most frequently happened near them, again, location awareness, and educate them on how to spot them. Look, we have learning supercomputers in our pockets. We have even stronger learning systems in the cloud. So sending an image or even pointing your camera, now that I live upstate, right? Pointing, I got this application seek. I can point my camera at any bird squirrel uh, squirrel chipmunk i learned there's more than squirrels um or any plant or flower and it will tell me what it is with a ridiculous degree of certainty we could be training algorithms to help us identify a climate crime as it's happening what a cool idea yeah, yeah. so i could potentially like i have my cell phone and i could point it in the environment that i'm in and it could say oh i see a smokestack here DDD, did you know this is only supposed to be emitting, exactly. uh, you know, emissions or whatever for the next from two minutes, nine a.m. Yeah. yeah, to nine thirty, and then um, yeah, maybe I want to track that one. So the next day at nine a.m., it's like this should be emitting now. If you see it emitting after nine thirty, let us know. Yeah. And then maybe if I find, you know, at ten o'clock, I'm like, oh shit, it's emitting. I take my picture. Maybe then it even like pings other people using the app in the neighborhood. They're like. Hey, your neighbor saw that this smokestack was emitting at the wrong time. Do you see it too? Can you take a picture as well? Oh my gosh, Shannon, you are you are literally writing the design document for this thing. Because yeah, I think there's like there's a really incredible thing that happens when we do like even if we separate this from the app, great idea. But like even if we separate this from the app, we started this episode saying, hey, let's explore a grassroots like mechanic. Right. Right. That is only as powerful as how many blades of grass stand up and report, right? Right. Like, grassroots action, collective action, these things are mixed because we are a glut. We are a mass of people at the bottom of the system. And yeah, the ICC and the nation state can, you know, do it with fewer people and more power. But I do think I love that idea of like communalizing it mm -hmm. and in a certain sense, sending like notifications to people you're already banded up with in your zip or even outside of, hey, there might be a climate crime going on now. Could you imagine 
if the EPA doesn't receive just one or 10 or like 100 reports of the same crime, but like 100,000 reports of the same crime, depending on the population density, right? Like it's that kind of attention that starts to take a simple mechanic of observing a crime into something that feels more like collective action. And look, these applications outside of Pokemon Go are already at work. There is, in my personal opinion, an insidious application called, I think it's called like Citizen or something. And it's like a crime watch app. Whoa. You download this thing and then you basically become like a person who can report a crime happening at a location. And I think there's tons of ethical and moral complications to that. It's also a massive tool in gentrification as it like, so I was living in you know Harlem before this and like citizen apps started getting used around and the types of crimes that I were seeing were not the types of like, the language that was being used was not being necessarily reflective of the people who lived in that community for so right. long. And the things that like playing your music loudly on the sidewalk at 10 o'clock at night were just colloquial known things. Yeah. So if we're using these types of watchdog applications to police ourselves, like against each other, right. why wouldn't we use them in a capacity to hold serious reportage and serious recording to the very powerful and insidious groups that are killing us? Not so slowly and maybe catching the Gulf of Mexico on fire. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Because I mean, yeah, we're always talking about how individuals can take action. You can go solar, you can compost, you can reduce your own energy usage. But at the end of the day, you know, we always are acknowledging that those also feel pretty small potatoes. Yeah. Like any one impact is pretty small. And even if we all took those actions, again, like the impact doesn't add up to 100%. Exactly. And I love the idea of this because it creates a way for individuals to get involved, both themselves, but also collectively to tackle it at a completely different level, which is that legal level. Yes. It's not just me writing my senator and saying, I really want you to focus on this. It's saying, I see a crime literally happening. This is against the law. It should be prosecuted. Here's the proof. It's just, it's a beautiful way to add in that other level of engagement and tackling the problem with an individual's power, yes. but in a completely different, bigger framework. Yeah. And that therefore could have so much of a of a much bigger impact yes. than just the individual. It's like I take an individual individual action, but the impact can be much bigger because I'm actually taking an individual action on a problem and on an actor whose impact is much bigger than just my own. Oh, so well said. So well said. And you also made you reminded me that like, you know, there's another aspect to why it could be potentially powerful to have this. As pedantic as this is about to sound as like in the weeds as this sounds about a pie in the sky idea, like having it programmed and available as a native application, like native IE, like programmed to be downloaded as a standalone application within the architecture of iOS or Android also becomes powerful because those are the standards that can line up very, very carefully with digital forensics, which is like proving yes. without beyond a shadow of a doubt that this thing happened. Look, we have seen the horror and the progress of pointing our camera on abuses of power, mm -hmm. you know, tracing a line far, 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 far back from the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but specifically in the legal case, in the in the in the courtroom, uh, and in the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, for example, the jurors and the court at large and the reporters who were allowed in all talked about how the testimony was one really 
crucial element of actually sticking a conviction on the cop, which is a very rare thing that murdered the civilian, it was the recording. Mm -hmm. This horrifying, like no one should ever have to see something like that. And yet seeing it and hearing it became this incontrovertible emotional, like two in one. You could not turn your eyes or your ears away from that horrendous suffering. And I think potentially to turn this towards hope, what if that same mechanic was just as powerful against climate crimes? On the one hand, tracing all the way back to like, yeah, let's help the EPA record these crimes. Great, good, it would be digitally forensically, you know, sourced and true. And there'd be hundreds of records of the crime, date stamped, time stamped and location stamped. Great, it happened. Wouldn't that also be a really compelling content stream? Wouldn't that be a way of shaming the companies or the polluters or the individuals that were doing this until such a time that they could be prosecuted or fined? Shame is a really powerful tool that the grassroots that we the people have. Shame is even before we the people. It, it's, a, it's an indigenous concept. Shame was used to ostracize and to eject people from their versions of civil society, like older versions of civil society, for a long time. It's a powerful demotivator <laughs> or a motivator to change. I feel like the way you were putting it, like I feel like there's like so many goods that could come out of this. Not just the forensic, but the emotional. I love it. So how do we make it happen? I well, mean, we're not an app company. We're a solar company. Not so. yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, I mean, of the, of the people who are listening to this podcast, like there are a lot of open frameworks uh, that are available actually for free to cobble together applications uh, from people who are, you know, s slightly more skilled than we are to like incredibly skilled in the in the sort of craft and art of programming. But a lot of these frameworks exist. Machine learning exists, uh, like the tagging and sort of forensics end of what I was talking about. Like many architectures for this exact application exist. It's just the rules have to be written for climate crimes. If anybody who's listening to this doesn't do it themselves, yeah, we could like pitch this. There's like lots of, um, there's lots of like foundations that do actually give out grants and hook you up with programmers to get this stuff done. So what do you say we like wait a few weeks and if we don't see a headline that announces it, we can do it ourselves. <laughs> nice. Do you know yeah. anybody at the EPA? Uh, I, I feel like we might need some more law. I think we yeah we need some help. help. Do you know anybody? I don't know if your undergrad yeah, degree is yeah, yeah, my, yeah no, this, is, this, this is the limits of my undergrad degree, right? <laughs> like I had an idea. Yeah. But yeah, Period. I, I, what I want to <laughs> say is like there's the there's the really important part of like how do you make it. And I think there's also the really important part of like not limiting your imagination to the stuff that you already see around you. And I, I know that this episode has been kind of like pie in the sky, but again, read some of the articles that we'll share in the links and you'll see that like there is a real enforcement problem right now. And an application alone will not solve it. Every day, I mean, we could be doing enforcement every day without this application. The framework for citizen enforcement has been there from the start. It's just about creating the behavior change that more and more people can do it. It doesn't have to be in a game. It doesn't have to be in an application, but it does need to be in a place that's accessible uh, and is, you know, kind of in your pocket that you carry it with you every day, right? The, the best camera that you have is the one that you yeah. got with you. No, I, and I love, I just love the idea that um, we're told that there are a few things that we can do to work on climate change and we should do those and... It often doesn't feel like we have a ton of power, but this is just a good reminder, like stay inspired, keep your eyes open, use the skills that you have to fight the problem 
at hand, you know? Like, yeah, let's use an app. Let's make a game. Yeah, let's make a game. In order to fight it. Yeah. Like, it's it's not just about going solar or composting or calling your senator or voting. There's so much more we can do if we were all focusing on this as a real problem to get solved in the next 10 years. Yeah, exactly. And even in the, in, yes, and in the moments of being a part of solving the problem, can we find some joy? That might be an incredible motivator. For sure. Right? There's a lot of doom. There's a lot of gloom. And I know I was steeped in it just a couple episodes you ago. Were. <laughs> um, you were. But can we find the joy in fighting back? I think we can. I, I agree. I love it. Thanks for inspiring us to be. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks for giving me the space to be doom and gloom and then sort of turn it back around. <laughs> turn your frown upside down. Indeed and now we're all inspired. And so, yeah, uh, you know, one of those actions that you can take today beyond citizen enforcement of climate change is deciding to go solar. Look, you're you're actually, you're, you're, you're having a big impact. Your home is having a big impact. So until a time where we can ban mansions outright, you know, for the richest few, no, apparently a, a home over 5,000 square feet is technically considered a mansion and it maps one-to-one -one with the huh. most polluting homes in the world. Well, that makes so sense. So if we just ban mansions, we take a huge chunk of carbon out of the uh, the equation. But until sense. then, if you're feeling like you want to go solar, hit us up. We're Sun Common. We're in Vermont and in upstate New York. And we're, we're here to serve. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks so much, Susanna. Thanks, Debbie. Cheers. Thank you.